Welcome to Guerrilla Radio, recorded March 8th, 2023. While March 20th marks the 20th anniversary of America's second invasion of Iraq, despite the tens of millions of people across the globe coming into the streets to hold at bay the dogs of George Bush's generational war, Operation Iraqi Freedom's shock and awe, called Blitzkrieg in another era, was launched. We all know what happened and the failure of the people to stop the slaughter then and in Afghanistan in 2001 seemed to be the end of hope for the peace movement. But the flame for a world without war didn't die and has in fact recently been spotted flickering in the capitals of Europe, Canada, and even in Washington, D.C. Ken Stone is an executive member of both the Syria Support Movement International and Hamilton Coalition to Stop the Wars. Ken Stone and the smoldering desire for peace peace well welcome back to the show ken my pleasure chris anytime well well ken now last week marked the beginning of the end the siege campaign for syria uh, what's at issue here what's at issue here is uh, getting earthquake relief to the syrian people who are affected by the massive earthquake it's been a few weeks but The problem is that in most of Syria, of the affected areas of Syria, such as Aleppo and Latakia, big cities, uh, no Western earthquake relief is reaching that area and the affected people because of Canadian U.S. sanctions on Syria. So even though the U.S. says that it was lifting uh, lifting sanctions temporarily for six months for humanitarian reasons. And Canada says we are, we've never disallowed humanitarian aid to Syria. The fact is you cannot send aid uh, to Syria unless there are financial transactions involved. And no American, US or European bank will touch uh, a transaction uh, of any magnitude to uh, the uh, areas controlled by the government of Syria. The, that means that uh, unless it's, you go through something like Western Union for a thousand, two thousand bucks for a personal uh, donation to a, you know your own family or somebody you know in Syria, nothing of Western origin, no aid is getting into places like Aleppo and Latakia. Now, aid is getting in to one part of Syria, and that part of Syria is the northeast corner of Syria, which is the Idlib governorate, Idlib province, which is under the control of uh, the Syrian affiliate of Al-Qaeda. So uh, we have this weird and terrible situation where aid goes into the northeast corner of Syria via Turkey, and the Syrian government even allowed a couple of extra openings, entry points, for aid to go into Idlib to help the people who who are suffering from the earthquake there. But the aid that goes in is handed over to Al-Qaeda. In other words, terrorists. And these terrorists, uh, you distribute the aid as they see fit. Of course, they keep most of the aid themselves, as we've seen throughout this long 12-year war in Syria. Whatever aid has gone through in the past to these Al-Qaeda affiliates, They keep most of it for their own fighters, and they often auction off uh, or try and sell it, the rest, to the people. So aid is getting in to al-Qaeda from the West, but not to the people in uh, the the government-controlled areas of Syria, such as Latakia and Aleppo. 
And on top of all that, just yesterday or the day before, the Israeli Air Force attacked. They attacked the runways at Aleppo International Airport, uh, putting them out of commission and thereby preventing uh, relief flights from landing in Aleppo. I call this sadistic because the Israelis know exactly what they're doing and they're trying, they don't care uh, how many people, ordinary Syrians suffer from the sanctions, which by the way, have reduced Syrians to about two, three hours of electricity a day. They, have, they, they don't have enough heating oil to uh, heat their homes. And they, you might have to line up for a day or two to be able to fill up your car at the gas pump. So it's a, a real, and people are unemployed. Uh, the, the currency has been devalued. This is all because of the U.S. regime change war in Syria, which the Canadian government since uh, Harper and followed up by Trudeau have been, have been supporting. And the reason that the Syrians don't have oil is because the eastern third of Syria is currently occupied by the United States of America. They have a number of military bases there. And this happened in about 2017, if I'm not mistaken. And Trump said, yes, we're there to take the oil. We're there to hold on to the oil. It's not U.S. oil. It's not owned by the U.S. And nobody invited the U.S. in. But they're, they're sitting on the oil and they're plundering it. And they're also plundering the wheat resources of that part of the country, which is the most fertile part of the country. So Syrians in Damascus, Aleppo, and Latakia have no oil, and it's hard to pay for, pay for bread, while the U.S. is sitting on the eastern third of Syria. And just this week, U.S. Top General Mark Milley paid a visit to one of those illegal U.S. military bases in Syria, and he says that this, this occupation is going to continue. If you want my opinion of why, why he did that, I can tell you. Well, I know that there's been uh, some outrage expressed in Syria. They call his visit illegal. I don't know the legal ins and outs of it. I mean, other than the fact that the American presence in in the country is illegal anyway. But yeah, go ahead, Ken. Well, the U.S. is in the, in, uh, um, the eastern third of Syria. It's occupying it for two reasons. One is to deny the Syrian government, the legitimate government of Syria and Damascus, the um, revenues uh, from the oil, from the petroleum uh, and the wheat resources, which would enable Syria to rebuild itself after 12 years of a failed regime change war. That's reason one. Reason two is the U.S. Uh, has said, U.S. officials have been quoted publicly saying that they're sitting on the eastern third of Syria to use it as a bargaining chip in the final uh, settlement over the end of the war in Syria. In other words, the U.S. wants to be able to dictate terms to the Syrian government once the uh, war is over. Well, I wonder, too, if it doesn't have something to do with Iraq. I said off the top that this is the 20th anniversary of the American invasion. People may be surprised to learn that America still has a garrison, a military garrison within Syria. It was announced just this past week that that garrison would stay in place, much as Millie said that this will stay in place in Syria. He said the same of the, um, the I think it was uh, 2,000 American soldiers, but uh, don't quote me on the numbers, but they too would stay 
stay put in Iraq as well. So I, I don't know that maybe eastern Syria, which abuts the, uh, Iraq, might be a part of their um, the American hope to reinforce its uh, garrison should it need to. Yes. Well, uh, f- first of all, the U.S. is there and remains in Syria and Iraq on the pretext of fighting ISIS. And I probably don't have to tell your listeners, but just in case, I will say that ISIS from the very beginning was a U.S. asset. They created it in order to try and overthrow the government of Syria, uh, the government in Damascus, and, and fracture the country along confessional lines. That failed. But uh, the, the other purpose ISIS served is that the it gives the U.S. a pretext to remain on the uh, on the lie that the U.S. is fighting terrorism in Syria and, and Iraq. Actually, the U.S. we know very well from statements that, from diplomatic cables released by uh, WikiLeaks and statements made by Hillary Clinton, John Kerry, and Joe Biden himself that the U.S. and its allies, including Saudi Arabia and Israel, financed, uh, trained, uh, supported, armed ISIS, and uh, they have done so for a number of, since about 2014 or 2015. And you'll note that ISIS never attacks U.S. or Israeli installations. It only attacks Syrian installations. And uh, the uh, U.S. and Israel never attack ISIS positions. It's up to the Syrian government, supported by its Iranian and Hezbollah and Russian allies to do that. So it's been a complete fraud, this whole ISIS operation. And it's been, as I say, a reason for the U.S. to maintain an illegal occupation in Syria, because they haven't been invited, and to maintain its uh, position in Iraq, where they were originally invited, but Three years ago, after uh, Donald Trump publicly ordered the assassination of General Soleimani and uh, his counterpart in Iraq in a, uh, in a drone strike just outside of uh, Baghdad airport, where Soleimani was on a mission of peace at the invitation of the Iraqi prime minister, and he was to meet with uh, the Saudi Arabian uh, diplomatic representatives, they were trying to arrange a peace. So since the just days after that, the Iraqi parliament passed a resolution calling on the U.S. to get out. That resolution was not a what they call a binding resolution, but it, you know, it received unanimous support in the Iraqi parliament and the uh, U.S. government has just decided to ignore it. So the U.S. government is remaining in Iraq uh, against the wishes, the clear wishes of the people expressed by the parliament, and they are remaining in Syria as well. So that's why the, uh, the these demonstrations that you started off about are taking place. Uh, this is the first time uh, I can ever remember, except for, of course, the embargo on Cuba, that people have taken to the streets in so many countries. Actually, last Saturday, in 13 countries of the world, Canada, the U.S., Germany, Jordan, many other countries, to demonstrate for the end of sanctions on Syria. And uh, the demonstrations were in, of different sizes in different places, but they are the group that's uh, coordinating this international action is calling for yet another day of international actions 
on Saturday, March 18th. And there will be one in uh, in Canada. It'll be either in Mississauga or in Toronto. There might be one in Montreal as well. So Canada, Canadians are taking part in this international movement against sanctions. And it's long overdue because sanctions are an act of war. And they often kill more people than bullets. If you remember the sanctions on Iraq between the two Gulf Wars that killed half a million people, you might recall that Madeleine Albright was interviewed much later. She was the former U.S. Secretary of State who ordered these sanctions. They killed half a million children. And on TV, she said it was worth it. So these sanctions are a cruel and unjust means of waging war, which only one body in the world can order. And that body is the United Nations Security Council. It's the only body in the world that can order international sanctions because they're an act of war. And the sanctions on Syria that were not approved by the UN Security Council. So they are illegal sanctions. Yeah, well, speaking of illegality now, uh, I'm reading a report from uh, France uh, 24. They quote uh, Agence France Press. Uh, the transport minister of uh, Syria, Suleiman Khalil, saying of the Aleppo airport attack, he says that since the earthquake a month ago, more than 80 aid flights have landed at Aleppo airport. Aleppo was one of the hardest hit cities by the earthquake, and it was one of the most the hardest hit cities of the war as well. I can't even imagine there's uh, two bricks standing on top of each other after all of this. Uh, on top of that, though, the airport was functional, 80 flights in a month's time. So you're looking at almost three flights a day of aid coming from Iran and other countries that aren't afraid to break uh, the sanctions that the West has ordered. And then the Israeli Air Force attacks. He mentions, does uh, the minister, that this is a, a double crime. It, it, it's a, a crime to blow up a civilian airport in any instance but to do so in the condition that things are now in that area following the earthquake and the the long war that israel has played a very active role in uh, is uh, makes this a crime uh, doubly so well i have a couple of things to say about that if you don't mind the the first one is that this is a reckless act by uh, and illegal as you already said by the israelis because it might very well pr- provoke a reprisal attack on some Israeli installation or ship or, or uh, embassy somewhere in the world, and it could cause a spiraling circle of violence. In other words, the, the reckless Israeli attack endangers all the people in the Middle East because who knows what could happen as a result of it. And the second thing I want to say about that is crickets. That's what we got in Canada and the U.S. and the Western world. It is crickets in the media, crickets from the governments in the West. Not one of them, to my knowledge, um, has said anything about the Israeli attack on the uh, Aleppo International Airport. So what they're doing, as usual, is enabling the Israel to carry on its rogue behavior in the world. Well, and this isn't the first time the Israeli Air Force has been used to bomb Syria. It's been a, a regular two or three times a week, I think, uh, event that's gone on. And it's funny when you were talking about ISIS, 
uh, in the now Israeli-occupied Golan Heights, uh, newly occupied during this war uh, against Assad, that there was an instance a couple of few years ago now where uh, Israeli ho- uh, field hospitals were treating wounded. I, I'm not sure if they were ISIS members or but some, or some affiliate of theirs, but th- it was captured on tape, and there there was no denying that they were actually treating the terrorists that they in America were sworn to defeat. They were uh, transferring wounded al-Nusra fighters from the occupied Golan Heights into Israel to hospitals there. And uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu visited them publicly. And it was on TV and in all the newspapers that the Syria was helping al-Nusra fight the government in Damascus. They would have, yes, Israel. Yeah, Israel's fighting. Um, uh, Israel is helping. Israel would prefer, they said, uh, to have al-Nusra in Damascus than President Assad. Yeah, well, that must have been a moment of great embarrassment for the Americans. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Guerrilla Radio. I'm speaking today with Ken Stone. Ken's an executive member of both the Syria Support Movement International and Hamilton Coalition to Stop the Wars. We're talking a little bit about Syria first. Uh, and uh, you said a couple of things, Ken, that I, I want to clarify. If I, for example, am Syrian living in Canada, is it still possible for me to send um, money via Western Union or, or another means to my relatives there without falling afoul of Canada's sanction regime against the country? Um, As I understand it, in the U.S., uh, Western Union has been allowing transfers of up to $2,000 a day from uh, individuals in uh, the U.S. to individuals uh, in Syria. And I, the last thing I heard was that people in Syrians in uh, Canada were trying to see if Western Union would do it here. And so far, no luck. People are using informal networks to get um, aid to Syria. For example, the Syrian community in Mississauga collected tents and, uh, and uh, sleeping bags, a whole warehouse full of them. They packaged them up. They sent them by the Jordanian airlines that took it for, for free, I think and took it to Jordan, and then they brought it across the border into Syria. And people I know, other people I know in Canada um, are using friends in Lebanon or groups in Lebanon uh, to uh, funnel um, financial contributions into Syria. Um, I don't have the the information at my fingertips for you right now, but if anybody is interested in finding out uh, a way to send money to Syria from Canada, they can um, they can write to the coalition at HCSW, Hamilton Coalition to Stop the War, HCSW at Kojiko.ca. How do you spell Kojiko, Ken? C-O-G-E-C-O.ca. .ca. Yeah, well, I guess what I was wondering is if they're running a risk of having their bank accounts seized by the Canadian government, people that do, as you describe. Um, I don't I don't think that's a risk. What the problem is, the real problem that the Syrian Canadian community is concerned about is the fact that the Canadian government broke off diplomatic relations with Syria and they closed the Syrian embassy in Ottawa, which means that Syrians have no access to their birth certificates, their driver's license, their educational certificates. 
They can't get a transcript. They can't uh, communicate with any government departments in, in Syria. So it, it, they're, they're isolated from their families and it causes them a lot of stress and grief. Uh, and one of the things they keep demanding at these uh, demonstrations is for Canada to reopen the Syrian embassy in Ottawa. Well, Ken, in the United States, I'm just reading uh, Aaron Maté is on uh, Twitter talking about a motion in the Congress down there uh, to lift the sanctions, and it was defeated. And he says that uh, uh, after the earthquake, every single House Democrat, including the, the squad, the so-called progressive wing, voted to reject the lifting of U.S. sanctions on Syria, even while the top U.N. expert humanitarian right. expert says that these are these sanctions and this is in a report from November of last year say that these are absolutely suffocating sanctions and they are crimes against humanity essentially that was Elena Duhan D O U H A N and she wrote a magnificent report uh which has been ignored in the west the the, the media now you uh can you wrote uh, you listened to you did something that I, I stopped doing a very long time ago, and that was listened to the current the radio program on <laughs> the CBC. And if uh, only our listeners could see your or hear your eyes roll as I can. Uh, but you talked. Uh, you wrote a letter to Matt Galway, the uh, host of that program, in talking about uh, his interview with Dr. Al Kasim or Kasim. Uh, who was delivering aid to Syria. Do you want to uh, go over that? Yes, um, it's a particularly uh, obnoxious example of Canadian hypocrisy. Dr. Al-Qassam is a doctor in, in the Hamilton and Oakville area, and uh, he works for the Canadian government, or he gets money for a, an org his organization, which is whose acronym, his initials are UOSSM. I forget what it stands for, but you can Google it. And what it is, is a medical organization that works exclusively and has worked only exclusively in areas controlled by the terrorists in Syria since 2014. So what Mr. Dr. Al-Qassam does is he collects medical supplies and money and resources from the Canadian government, gets, gets them into uh, Turkey and takes them across the border into Idlib. In 2016, uh, Dr. Sam was uh, in, in Aleppo, uh, while half of Aleppo was occupied by the terrorists. And when there was a, uh, while the liberation of Aleppo was going on, Dr. Sam came here to Hamilton, Ontario, to uh, participate in a protest organized by people, Syrian opposition people here at Hamilton City Hall. We went there and we handed out flyers and talked to people and tried to show them what was really going on. And he was saying that the, there was a bloodbath going on in Aleppo and that the Syrian government was killing everybody in sight in East Aleppo. It was all a lie. And the people that they had demonstrating were Syrian refugee children. They, picked, they went through the Syrian community here in Hamilton they picked up about 80 children. They dressed them all up in in uh, white sheets with uh, bloody handprints on them. Well, they weren't real blood, but they were paint, red paint handprints. And that, that was their demonstration against the liberation of Aleppo. Uh, and he is the guy who Matt Galloway interviewed. And what I asked uh, Matt Galloway to do was to interview me 
or somebody else uh, in the uh, Syrian community or somebody, somebody in, the, uh, in the peace movement to give the other side of the story, saying that why sanctions uh, have to be lifted on Syria, as explained by Dr. Alina Duhan, the UN official uh, rapporteur on coercive economic measures, specifically on Syria, because as you said, they are suffocating the people, they are starving the people, and I imagine that they're killing the people too because they're not getting medical resources. Uh, when they do operations in Syrian hospitals, they have to use uh, the, their uh, personal cell phones for lighting because there's no electricity. I mean, how bad does it have to get before the uh, Canadian government shows a little bit of humanity? Well, I can't say that I'm stunned. I, I, I'm not surprised, but I, I, maybe I'm numbed by the way Canadians, their lack of imagination in trying to assess what's going on in other places in the world uh, with no who, that have been bombed back to the Stone Age or at least the pre-electricity age and how they can't seem to understand what it's like when the power goes out here, just imagine what, what it's like for you when you lose power in a winter storm or whatnot for a couple of few hours. What you saw, Can you imagine having that every day and not to mention all the emergency services and so forth? You say in, a, in your open letter to uh, Matt Galloway, and I'll quote you, if you would like to offer your listeners a broader picture of the deadly effects of the earthquake in Syria, which are compounded by Canada's illegal sanctions on that country, I'd be pleased to sit for an interview with you. Did Matt respond? In one word? No. <laughs> well, that wasn't the word I thought you were going to say, so I don't have to use my my bleep machine. Yeah, well, I, I, how about, uh, I mean, I well, I guess it's a rhetorical question, but the, the way that the media generally has been in this country. But Ken, we're, we're out of time for this segment. I'm going to be talking with Dan Kovac about Nicaragua and another place that Canada has onerous sanctions. Are the sanctions Canada has against Nicaragua, do you know, can illegal as well? Or have they been uh, sanctified by the United Nations? They have not been sanctified by the United Nations. They are illegal. Nicaragua is among, last count, uh, 21 countries that are being sanctioned by, by Canada in the world. And most of them are countries, poor countries in the global south, and about a third of those countries are countries in Africa in the, where mostly people of color live and they live in a very poor condition. So we are basically kicking the marginalized people of the world while they're down. That's what wow. Canada is doing with these sanctions. Well, the rule of law, and as ever, the law is meant to restrain the poor, not the rich. Uh, we'll break off then, and I'll come back with Dan Kovalik. But uh, Ken and I are going to do an extended version of this that you can find at the website, gorilla-radio.com. Thanks, Ken. My pleasure. Well, I got I to gotta think that we're not alone. I'm sitting in my house watching all this happen, and I, I've, I've arrived to a point where I just can't keep my mouth shut anymore. Guerrilla Radio, you're not alone.
Well, welcome back to Guerrilla Radio. I'm speaking today with Ken Stone. Ken is the executive member of both the Syria Support Movement International and Hamilton Coalition to Stop the Wars. In the first segment, Ken, we were talking about Syria. I'd like to shift gears, uh, but stay with Canada and Canada's onerous uh, sanctions policies against both Syria and um, Nicaragua. But But Canada, too, has sanctions against China. There was a recent report from the PMO's office that you and I talked about a little off air. It is titled, Taking Further Action on Foreign Interference and Strengthening Confidence in Our Democracy. Uh, We've heard a lot, uh, well, especially in the United States, about foreign interference in elections uh, with the whole uh, laughably risible Russia manipulation of the election charges after the Trump win in 2016 that carried on throughout his presidency. It seems to be a contagion that has moved up to Canada and other countries too in the Western Alliance uh, that the Canadian government wants us to be very afraid that our democracy is vulnerable to attack from foreign agents and uh, especially Chinese ones. Uh, You've read this uh, memo or this press release rather. Ken, what's your take? Uh, My take is that uh, the Trudeau government is... uh with the help of the opposition parties, all of them, is trying to manufacture consent for a war with China. The Trudeau government and all the opposition parties are uh, gearing up for sinophobia, for hatred of Chinese, not only in China, but also here in Canada. When the pandemic started uh, a few years ago, you'll remember that uh, Donald Trump called it the Wuhan flu, and he tried to blame the uh, Chinese government for the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. It didn't catch on in uh, in officialdom, but uh, the fact is that there, in the year following that, there was a 300% increase in uh, uh, hate crimes and physical attacks on people of Asian origin in your province, Chris, British Columbia. And I predict that following uh, Trudeau's recent statements uh, and the amplification from the opposition, all loyal opposition, that there will be a huge spike in attacks uh, and hate crimes against people of Asian origin, particularly Chinese, here in Canada. What they are doing is, uh, it's a witch hunt. It's very similar to the Russiagate thing you mentioned in the U.S., where it turned out to be absolutely uh, uh, without foundation. Uh, but it went on for four years. And in that period of time, uh, you couldn't help but uh, in the state to think that Russia was bad, if you listen to the media, and Putin was evil. And so it, it helped. It's, it's helped uh, the U.S. ruling class wage their war, their U.S. proxy war, the NATO war in Ukraine, against Russia because the ground had been prepared for four years. And now we know for a fact, Canada is ramping up its aggressive meddling. And they talk about China meddling in Canadian elections. What a joke. But Canada had just in, issued an, uh, a new Indo-Pacific strategy, uh, and which is a, a change in nomenclature. Uh, it used to be an Asian Pacific strategy, which makes sense. But the Indo-Pacific strategy is meant to hint that India is going to be our ally, our Canadian government ally against China. And that's how they're going to contain, and which is another word for destroy, the People's Republic of China. And if you don't believe me, read 
the details of the Indo-Pacific strategy issued by the Trudeau government. They earmarked $500 million of your tax money, Chris and mine, for extra frigates to sail, Canadian frigates, this is gunboat diplomacy, set to sail up and down the Straits of Taiwan like ugly little ducklings following the U.S. aircraft uh, carrier fleets um, so as to show the flag and try and intimidate the Chinese and try and break Taiwan away from China. Of course, you and I know, Chris, that, China, that Taiwan has been a part of China for about 500 years. It's only in 1949 when the escaping Guomindang party uh, lost the revolution, uh, they lost the civil war uh, with the People's Republic of China, with the Chinese People's Liberation Army, and they had to flee to, to Taiwan. And they landed in Taiwan and the U.S. protected them, gave them, uh, gave them armaments and uh, funding and everything else. The U.S. maintains a small presence in Taiwan as well. And there was a standoff until, uh, I think, uh, well, with Canada and uh, uh, Justin's father, Pierre, opened diplomatic relations with China, the People's Republic, in 1971. And then we had five decades of prosperity. Uh, Nixon followed suit a, couple, a few years later, and they recognized the People's Republic of China as the only China. As the, as the entity which controls all of China, including Taiwan. It's called the One China Policy. The Canada signed on to it officially, the US signed on to it officially, and the UN signed on to it officially. But lately, uh, since Obama's pivot to Asia back in 2014, the US has been trying to encourage a independence movement in uh, Taiwan to break to make Taiwan declare itself independent um, and become a separate country, not a part of China anymore. And they sent Nancy Pelosi for a visit there, which caused the Chinese to have military exercises all around Taiwan. They sent Judy Scrow, uh, the Canadian Minister of International Trade to Taiwan. This was because the, there was going to be an election and the independence-minded party was running and the independence-minded president was running for re-election, but she lost and the independence party lost because the people, most of the people, well, a good percentage of the people, 30, 40% of the people of Taiwan want reunification with China. They consider themselves Chinese. Recently, the top US general uh, of the Marines, uh, he, he announced that preparations are already underway for a war with China over Taiwanese independence. So the, the wheels are already in motion for another war. I mean, the war that took place, in, that's taking place now in Ukraine did not just start on February 24th of last year. There was a coup to put in a pro-NATO government in, uh, in 2014 in Kiev. And there was an expansion of NATO for 30 years. They had this this plan to destroy the Russian Federation has been in the works for 30 years. And now it's clear that they have a plan as well for Taiwan. So Canadians should understand that what is being talked about in the uh, in this this witch hunt about a non-existent uh, uh, Chinese interference in Canadian politics is part of war preparations. 
And it's if you look beyond the surface, you can see just who is pulling the strings here. And who is really pulling the strings here is CSIS, the Canadian Security and Intelligence Service. CSIS uh, um, has been leaking documents to their friends, certain journalists at uh, certain anti-Chinese journalists at the Globe and Mail. So they leak these documents without re referring to specific document or a specific source. They say sources within trusted sources, etc., uh, have uh, in indicated that the Chinese interfered in X number of uh, writings in the elections of 2019 and 2021, and they even they even accused a certain liberal MP uh, of taking money or taking influence from China in I think the 2021 election. And you know, I feel sorry. I don't like the Liberal Party in Canada. I don't like the Trudeau government. But I feel sorry for this guy, this Chinese MP, because he is a victim of a witch hunt. Nothing he can do or say is going to help him at this point because he's Chinese. And I'm afraid that uh, Chinese scientists in Canada, Chinese doctors, Chinese educators, they're all now going to be under the shadow, the shadow of CSIS. Nobody in the, in the Canadian government is going to trust anybody who is Chinese unless they come out publicly and denounce the People's Republic of China, the way My Mitchell or Michael Chong does, the, the uh, conservative MP from Guelph. So we are living in a dangerous time, especially if you're uh, Canadian or Chinese origin. And we really have to call this out. This is um, leading, this is like what was done to the Japanese during World War II in Canada, when they were rounded up, they, all their properties confiscated, and they were put into concentration camps in Western Canada. Uh, this, is like, uh, uh, this is like the way that uh, Sikhs were treated who were banned from Canada, or the Jews who were not given refuge during World War II. This is part and parcel of, I hate to say it, of who we are as Canadians. But it's being repeated again. And I don't see uh, the Aaron Maté uh, in, the, in, the, in public, in, in the Canadian media, uh, to take on this thing. I see, I, see the, Phil, I see Phil Taylor of the Taylor Report, who week after week is trying to expose this racist calumny against Chinese Canadians. But aside from, uh, I saw also Dimitri has denounced it. And so Dimitri Lascaris and Eve Engler. But in the mainstream media, there is no one, not a word against this, this racist attack on Chinese Canadians. And I really feel sorry for our country that this is happening right now. We recently saw, Ken, that the Canadian government had uh, went into vapors about TikTok right on cue. Uh, I mean, I don't think that the echoes of the American denunciation of this app had fallen silent before the Canadian government picked up the call again. What, what's the deal with TikTok? It's Chinese. That's the basis of it. Um, but you have to remember that our government is part of the Five Eyes Intelligence Network, which takes in all the WASP countries that used to be part of the British Empire. UK, US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. 
these are this is a white supremacist organization that is sinophobic and all the five eyes country picked on huawei because it was a threat to um, u.s domination of these um technical industry high-tech industry canada trudeau was sent a letter just six weeks before among one joe was arrested from the head of the special u.s special sent um select committee on intelligence, the Wagner Rubio letter, which in told, gave Trudeau his marching orders in black and white, get rid of Huawei out of your uh, 5G system and replace it with US equipped or Western uh, sources instead. So anything Chinese, uh, especially high tech stuff is uh, under attack uh, by the Five Eyes uh, intelligence network. And there's a, a separate reason for that, and that is because they accused Huawei of having back doors in all of their tech equipment. And uh, Huawei did, had no back doors, and they opened their, their products to international inspection for years, and nobody could find a back door because there is no back door. However, the U.S. Uh, government routinely requires U.S. high-tech mm -hmm. companies to put, install back doors in all of its equipment so that it can get into any country through the back door, uh, which installs their equipment. So they didn't want Chinese high-tech stuff because they couldn't access it. And that's the reason for their attack on TikTok and other uh, Chinese high-tech high -tech aspects of their industry. I would like to point out to you that when it comes to uh, election interference, I should have mentioned this earlier, it's not the Chinese who have interfered in Canadian elections in the past. Yeah. It's uh, the U.S. hasn't uh, interfered in Canadian elections. They did it openly to um, to turf Diefenbaker out of uh, office. This, I think, was late 50s or early 60s because he wouldn't hold the line uh, on U.S. Bomark nuclear missiles. And uh, the uh, Israeli government routinely interferes and, and with politicians and uh, and governments in Canada, and uh, nobody says boo about that. So uh, they're being very selective about uh, who they want to uh, charge or accuse of election interference. And in this case, it ser it serves as you say the pol the purposes of the country from which we take all our orders, and that is the U.S. The U.S. is a declining empire that had 30 years with the fall of the uh, Soviet Union, in which it was the sole superpower in a unipolar world. And now it faces the reality. It doesn't want to face the reality, but it has to. it's going to have to come to terms eventually with the fact that we are now living in a multipolar world. But they don't like that very much. And they're still going after Russia and China as if they are enemies, even though Russia and China tried so hard not to appear as enemies or rivals. They, tr they went out of their way to be nice and friendly to the West, but that didn't help. The U.S. provoked the war in, in Ukraine, and now the U.S. says openly they are preparing for a war for Taiwanese independence. If you just tuned in, you're listening again to Guerrilla Radio. I'm speaking with Ken Stone, Ken's executive of both the Syria Support Movement International and Hamilton Coalition to Stop the Wars. Now, you mentioned, Ken, um, Dimitri Lascaris, 
You know, I just want to say before we go into that too, Ken, that when you talk about the American unipolar world, what an opportunity that would have been. They called it the peace dividend at the time where it was the end of this Cold War that I grew up with, fearing nuclear annihilation that could come at any moment, as we all did in those years. What a waste. We've had one war after the other since. They've all been waged with specious uh, justification. They've killed just, I don't know how many, uh, into the millions anyway, of, of people in countries around the world, and it's continuing on and only getting worse now. Tell me about uh, Dimitri's plan now. He ran for the Green Party. I'll remind people of Canada a, a couple of years ago, came, uh, came a very close second place. Do you want to tell me the details, Ken? Okay, well, Dimitri is also a very strong peace activist. He has made many speeches against the uh, the U.S. proxy war in uh, Ukraine. He has called out Canada for failing to, for he's called out Canada for refueling this war with un, endless arms, money, and mercenaries. And he's called for Canada to step back and to call for negotiation, a negotiated end to the conflict in Ukraine. In addition to this, he is going in a few weeks on a peace mission to Russia. And he will be speaking. We are organizing a forum for him on Saturday, March 18th at 12 noon Eastern time by Zoom. And we will advertise the registration link soon. And at that meeting, uh, Dimitri is going to explain why it is he's going to, to Russia, who he intends to see, what he intends to do, and what he intends to do when he comes back. And so we uh, are very pleased in the Hamilton Coalition to Stop the War to uh, be sponsor, organizing this event. We encourage all the listeners of Guerrilla Radio to register for it as soon as we have the registration of uh, information available on our website. Our website is hamiltoncoalitiontostopthewar.ca or hcsw.ca or you can look on our Facebook page, Hamilton Coalition to Stop the War, or our Twitter account. And we will have, Dimitri will be uh, speaking for about 20 minutes, and then we're going to have a Q&A at which time Canadians from coast to coast to coast can pose questions to Dimitri and ask him about uh, his plans. And I personally think that in view of the fact that the Canadian Prime Minister and Foreign Minister have steadfastly refused to undertake what's part of their job, and that is to pick up the phone and call their counterparts over in Russia, Mr. Putin and Mr. Lavrov, and speak to them and ask them, what would it take to bring an end to this bloody war in Ukraine? But so far, uh, Trudeau and um, Melanie Jolie have steadfastly refused to even talk to, pick up the phone, talk to, or engage with Russian their, their Russian counterparts at G20 meetings or other meetings. They, they leave the room. They walk out. They don't want to have uh, any conversation with the Russian government because if they did, they would have to report to the Canadian people what it is that the Russians want. And I have to, you know very well, and don't have to tell your listeners either probably, but there is a blackout here in Canada. You don't get to hear the Russian point of view. 
you don't get to hear you don't even get to hear Tchaikovsky or uh, Tolstoy. It's not allowed. Everything Russian is bad, bad, bad. And so it, in this situation, it's a, as Tamara Lorenz says, who is one of the great leaders of the Canada-wide Peace and Justice Network. That's the peace movement in Canada. Uh, and uh, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a steering committee member of that now. Uh, but Tamara Lorenz says, in a situation where the leaders of the country refuse to engage with their counterparts on the other side, it's up to the people of the country to go and make the kinds of contacts we need to achieve peace. And Tamara herself went to Russia and she went to the many countries in Eastern Europe and she met with peace activists all over there. And when she came back, she, was, she spoke in many forums and in many places about what she saw and heard and about the ag aggressive nature of the US and NATO's war in Ukraine. So I take it that Dmitry is going to do the same thing. Go to, uh, you know, go to Russia on a, on a personal mission of peace, tell the Russians that there is a large percentage of Canadians who are sort of scared right now to open their mouths, but who want to see an end to this war. And hopefully when he comes back, he'll probably tell us that there's a lot of people on the other side over there in Russia uh, who would like to see an end to this war as well. And there is a way there. He'll probably Dmitry himself often talks about land in exchange for peace. He says that probably there is some kind of settlement that could be made in which Russia uh, keeps part of part of Ukraine, probably the part where the Russian speaking people live and make it part of Russia in exchange for peace. But we don't know. Uh, Dimitri is going to talk on the 18th uh, at noon on this webinar, and then he's going to go a, a day or two later, fly to Russia and spend some time there. And then we'll see what happens when he gets back. Well, and we have to remember, too, that the, the, the war in Ukraine is only one aspect of a much larger war that seems that the West is intent on, on prosecuting uh, all over the world. And I'm interested in uh, connecting the dots. There's a, a link to the video. I, I Sadly, I missed this webinar, but there's a quote that inspired my introduction, Ken, and I'll read it if you don't mind. It says, as the anti-war movement awakens, photos and videos are streaming in from all corners of Western nations. Five of the G7 nations were home to noticeable anti-war demonstrations this month, February. One notable activity is shown at the end of this missive here, and it goes on. There is, it seems to me, an awakening moment, as you uh, point out, in a peace movement that has been too long um, in, uh, if not moribund, than in hibernation. I agree. I couldn't agree more. Uh, I congratulate the people in France and their tens of thousands in Greece, who the Greek workers who blocked the ports so that armed shipments could not be sent to Ukraine, and the uh, people who marched in in England, and the the people who marched at a, at a, a protest just a month ago in uh, the United, in Washington D.C. on February 19th. We had two of our people, uh, our executive members, go there, and they're they're reporting back on our our own independent radio today, uh, unusual sources at five o'clock, which people can tune into Liz and hear from Liz and Talar about their trip to Washington DC, February 19th. You can pick it up at cfmu.ca, cfmu.ca. 
and it's going to be uh, uh, it, it, it will you have you if you go to unusual sources or later you can go to our website we'll put up the interview there so yes you're right the, uh, the anti-war movement has been in the doldrums for since the be 20 years ago this month when the was the last time we saw hundreds of thousands and millions of people in the street demonstrating against the proposed Anglo-American attack on Iraq. And uh, we were on the street here too in Canada. Uh, we were on the street here in Hamilton. And in, in fact, uh, I'll just give you a little anecdote. The, the fellow who started the movement in Hamilton, his name is Kevin McKay. He was just a young fellow then, and he started off in March of 20, 2002, a year before the invasion. And with a, a demonstration of 20 or 25 people, which I attended, and we didn't think much of it, but he, he was persistent, and he had it every Saturday. And every Saturday got a little bigger than the Saturday before, until we had thousands of people marching in the streets, uh, in Hamilton, in Toronto, in Montreal, in Ottawa. So uh, Kevin McKay um, is uh, now a professor at uh, Mohawk College, and he was one of our speakers uh, for the uh, 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 an online webinar we had for the Canada-wide peace and justice movement a few weeks ago, and he's still very active in the peace movement. So I'm hoping that uh, we can follow the example that Kevin started 20 years ago this month. We're, we're have, the demonstrations we're having now are small, but in, in North America, but you know I hope we can grow those demonstrations into a movement that actually puts pressure on the government to stop its uh, proxy war uh, in Ukraine and to prevent another war happening over Taiwan. Because either of those two wars could easily mushroom into major regional wars or even a world war, a, a confrontation between nuclear powers. There's The stakes could not be higher. So I'm hoping people can see that it's time to step up to the plate and put their bodies on the line and send a message to the government. Stop your wars now. Start cooperating with other countries in the world to face the crisis, the, the existential crises that humanity is facing right now. One is the health crisis, which is not going away. And the other one is the environmental crisis, which is only getting bigger with every single day. So rather than fighting amongst ourselves, the countries of the world should be cooperating. And that's the message that the peace movement wants to get across. Well, Ken, I think those mustard seeds are planted in the hearts of millions around the world. And I think that they are just waiting to blossom. And I don't, I can't explain it to you, Ken, but for some reason, maybe it's the springtime. I feel a sense of optimism and I feel that those demonstrations will grow and i really think that the time is coming for the kind of change that you're talking about and that we all in our hope in our hearts hope for thanks a lot ken for coming on eh my pleasure chris and again it's hamilton coalition to stop the war.ca to find out more about what ken and his comrades are doing over there till the next time ken military and the monetary from thousands of miles in the Saudi Arabian sanctuary kept us all wondering if all of this was really truly necessary. We've got to work for peace. Peace ain't coming this way. If we only work for peace, 
If everyone believed in peace the way they say they do, we'd, we'd have peace. The only thing wrong with peace is that you can't make no money from it. The military and the monetary, they get together whenever they think it's necessary. They've turned our brothers and sisters into mercenaries. They are turning the planet into a cemetery. We've got to work for peace. Peace ain't coming this way. We should not allow ourselves to be misled by talk of entering a time of peace. Peace is not the absence of war, it is the absence of the rumors of war and the threats of war and the preparation for war. Peace is not the absence of war, it is the time when we will all bring ourselves closer to each other, closer to building a structure that is unique within ourselves because we have finally come to peace within ourselves. Military and the monetary. Military and the monetary. Military and the monetary. Get together whenever they think it's necessary. They have turned our brothers and sisters into mercenaries. They are turning parts of the planet into a cemetery. What you gonna do? Military and the monetary. Military and the monetary. What you gonna do? We hounded the Ayatollah religiously. Bombed Libya and killed Gaddafi's son hideously. We turned our back on our allies, the Panamanians, and saw Ali North selling guns to the Iranians. Watch Gorbachev slaughtering the Lithuanians. We better warn the Amish. They may bomb the Pennsylvanians. The military, the monetary. Get together whenever they think it's necessary. They have turned our brothers and sisters into mercenaries. They are turning the planet into a cemetery. They got folks out there working for war. Two, three, four. Make a whole lot of money, start a little trouble, it's war. Turn this planet in the north and south, it's war. Start a few rumors over there and make money with a war. Say it to yourself. I believe I we got to work for nobody. peace. Peace ain't gonna be free. I don't got to work for peace. Nobody. You believe in peace, got to go to work. They got folks out there working for war. Time to go to work. 